Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 9, Acts 9. You know what my favorite book of the Bible is? The one I'm presently going through, and I'm loving Acts. I'm loving what God has been teaching me. I hope you're enjoying it half as much as I am. Let's all stand as we take a look at this passage. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. So if we are to remember kind of where Paul has been so far, we kind of start with his conversion in Damascus. And after his conversion, he went to the Arabian Desert. And the Bible tells us in Galatians 1 that he spent about three years there. Now, we assume what took place at that point was basically like a desert seminary that he was learning about God's grace after growing up a Pharisee. He goes back to Damascus and has to be lowered down from a wall into a basket. Normally they built actually houses on the side of the walls that surrounded the cities. And uh, so apparently he went through a window. They put him down at night through this basket. From there, he went to, uh, from Damascus to Jerusalem. We know that he spent 15 days in Jerusalem. And the persecution heated up there as well. And then after Jerusalem, he went to Caesarea, a port city, and then sailed on to Tarsus. The Bible tells us that he spent a considerable time at Tarsus from Acts 9 to Acts 11. There's eight years that have spanned between those two chapters. Now, Paul was in fact a Hellenist. A Hellenist was like a a Greek Jew, a person who knew Greek, could speak Greek. Uh, We might say it was like a foreigner, a person who wasn't born in Jerusalem but grew up Jewish, and Paul's parents were both Jewish. You would think that he would, you know, have some some sympathy from the Hellenists after his conversion, but he got none. They were quite upset with him. We're not too hip on this idea of him being a follower of Christ. And that puts us at verse 28. So, He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Well, apparently, Saul's debating ability was too much for these Hellenists, and they plotted to assassinate him as a result. Uh, Saul's friends, again, like I said, took him to Caesarea, and then he went on to Tarsus. And there he spent eight years. Now, I've made this point repeatedly, but I'm going to make it again. That disputing somebody, 
disputing with somebody about Jesus, like it says in verse 29. And then in verse 22, it said that he was trying to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. What this implies is that there are actually facts to convey about the faith, about Jesus, about his person and his work. This should give us great encouragement that our religion is not based on some myth. Our religion is not based on some relativistic notion of what religion is. It's not based on opinion, but we have archaeological evidence. We have bibliographical evidence. There are eyewitness testimony to Jesus' resurrection and to his miracles. These are things that are objective and not just subjective in nature. So this is a, a great thing that I think separates Christianity from other faiths. But this was far too unsettling for the Hellenists. They couldn't so much argue the facts as they could argue the implication of the facts, and the implications are that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. So they would rather kill Saul instead of humbling themselves and acknowledging their sin and coming to grips with Jesus as the Messiah and putting their trust in him. Now, we don't know for sure what uh, Saul did for those eight years that he was in Tarsus, but we can be sure that God was still teaching him, that uh, God was using him. But one thing is for certain is that Saul was not on the warpath, that Saul has been converted. He's no longer killing and jailing Christians. And so we read in verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. In addition to what I've already pointed, pointed out, so strong was Jewish antagonism to Saul and his ministry that after he left the area, the church enjoyed a time of peace. And so he wasn't in you know, Galilee and Samaria and Judea, so those regions were fairly peaceful during those eight years. And that wasn't time of complacency, but there just wasn't this, you know, hotbed of, of persecution taking place. And so we know that during that time, certainly the, the church grew and it matured. And they seized that opportunity, we might say, to kind of strengthen their sails before the next storm would blow eight years later. I'm always intrigued by how the book of Acts uh, references the growth of the church. It sometimes refers to specific numbers. For instance, in, in uh, Acts 2.41, it says that 3,000 were added to the faith. Now, I know in the modern church today, we poo-poo the idea of you know, numbers, and it shouldn't be all about numbers, and I would agree with that. But specific numbers imply, I think, specific responsibilities on the part of the church to tend to these people. We have to teach them. We have to disciple them, right? We have to help them grow. Each number is a face, correct? And what we don't want is complete anonymity within the church. And to disregard the numbers, I think, are to neglect our responsibilities. In other words, you have responsibilities that are different for a church of 400, and that's different than a church of 1,000, and that's different than a church of, of 3,000. So the numbers mean something. I just think that's important for us to remember. But there's also general statements about the growth of the church. And here in verse 31, it says that the church multiplied. 
Now, that could be a reference to merely, you know, the church increasing, or it could be a term referencing the type of growth that it was experiencing by multiplication. In other words, you had one life influencing another, which would influence another. You had, you know, groups multiplying and, and, and churches multiplying or being planted. The fact is the principle of multiplication is seen throughout the New Testament. In 2 Peter 2.2, it says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So they're, they're multiplying. They're going from one to the next to the next. The Great Commission says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Making disciples, what does this imply? This implies relationships. Every one of those people are to have relationships with other people to model Christianity if they are to be discipled. And so you have to, in order to teach and observe, you have to do that close up. There has to be relationships. So I take all that and I apply it to us today. I apply it to Christ Community Church. And I would even apply it to our small groups. The idea is that we have to make space for new converts, new people, to have relationships that you and I have enjoyed who've been here a while. Now, does this mean that some of us are going to be inconvenienced? Yes, it does. But we have to decide whether this ministry will be marked by authentic, deep relationships or just herding people together and telling them that they have to fend for themselves. In light of our responsibilities in the kingdom of God to make disciples, to multiply, that's not a hard decision for me to make. I mean, Jen and I, we have been in countless small groups. I don't know how many small groups we have been in in the over 30 years that we've been a part of this church, and we've been in small groups even before that. Now, we would love to put a ribbon around the one or two small groups that we love the most and to keep it that way and to have that never change. But life is not that way. In life, things change. And the kingdom of God will always call us to do things that you might think is, will be an inconvenience to you, that will even be a sacrifice. But we're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about things that, that have eternal value. Let me ask you this. Is serving at Fairbanks in the inner city, is that an inconvenience for you? I mean, when viewed through the lens of the responsibilities to provide a cup of water and care for the least of these, is this not a privilege? Does giving, does giving sacrificially to Guatemala, does that constitute an inconvenience? I mean, when viewed through the lens of children who now have clothing, who now have schooling, who can hear the gospel, inconvenience is hardly on the radar. It's an honor, is it not, to heed the words of Jesus, which are, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me uh, receives not me, but him who sent me? Is it an inconvenience to be hospitable 
to guests in your home? Or do you tell them, you know, sorry, we didn't make any provisions. I sure hope you brought some food for yourself because we don't have enough. My point is that if we desire as a church to multiply and grow, then sacrifice will be welcomed, it will be expected. Because our lives are not about what we see on this earth, they are about the kingdom of God. Sacrifice is welcomed. There are two factors that were present while the church multiplied. Now, whether these items were the cause of the multiplication or were just present when the multiplication took place, I don't know. And frankly, I don't think it matters because as a church, you know, we are called to exhibit both. They walked in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think you'd be hard-pressed to come up with an idea that is more neglected within Christendom than to walk in the fear of God. I mean, this certainly puts the onus upon us to understand and to practice the fear of the Lord on a daily basis. God certainly is our companion, but I think we get so loose with thinking of God as our friend You know, it's like, uh, hey, good bud, you know, how are you? And I don't think we can approach God with some kind of careless intimacy. But there has to be a profound respect and reverence that then draws us in to that intimacy. God's not to be considered as the, the man upstairs, but he's a sovereign and holy God of all the earth. Robert Withnow, a highly respected professor in the social sciences from Princeton, wrote this. It was in his book, Sharing the Journey. He talked about how the the evangelical church has reduced the idea of a transcendent God into a pragmatic, fix-it, you know, meet-my-daily-needs deity. He says this, that we need to help members adapt to the demands of everyday life or this is what we, we, that happens, we help members adapt to the demands of everyday life, rather than providing a sense of transcendence that casts new perspective on everyday life. So in other words, if we give and worship God as, as a transcendent holy God that he is, it's a way that he has revealed himself, which is why you have a lot of people who want to just, you know, deny or cut out the Old Testament. By the way, I think these principles are also in the New, but in the Old Testament, you know, you have a lot of scary things going on, scary stories. Like, I don't want that God. Wow, really? You're going to just chop it off, get some Reader's Digest version of the Bible now? Godly fear is a detriment to sin. We know this from Genesis 20.11. It says, Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, and it will kill me because of my wife. Exodus 20, 20 says, and Moses said to the people, God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of God may remain with you so that you may not sin. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way. And then the New Testament says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness 
in the fear of God. We also see this out of Hebrews. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And later on in Hebrews 12, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So, listen, there is a fact about the Christian life, that I, and I think this doctrine is so neglected about the discipline of God and about the rewards of God that Many Christians abuse grace and think now that they're, you know, no Christ and they're, they have, they're forgiven, they can just do whatever they want without any consequences. And so then what happens is, you know, we go to an extreme and then we say, well, then I guess what that means is if you've got a person who's really sinning, they're probably going to lose their salvation. Well, listen, the idea of discipline and the idea of losing rewards, it's not about salvation, Our salvation that God promises to us is protected by the character of God. But a Christian can lose rewards. And the Bible refers to the judgment seat of Christ, where there's a reward time for believers. And what that means is there will be some believers who get a lot of rewards, some who get little, and some who get even less. And I think this doctrine is solely lacking in Christian circles, and I believe it's the reason that many Christians think they can just get away with sin. But you don't get away with sin. God will discipline you, and our, our, our actions have eternal consequences. You, you don't need to go to these extremes that you can get away with sin. You don't need to, to decimate the promises of God in salvation, you know, to kind of keep people in line. Just preach the whole counsel of God. The Holy Spirit will take care of it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Well, that fire is not hell. The fire is is God's judgment, judging the good works, and some will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. So again, there will be some Christians that might expect great rewards, and they'll get much less because they've been disobedient because maybe they've been selfish, because they wanted all the glory, because Christ was not fueling their Christian life. They were doing it all in the flesh. It's a multitude of reasons. But what I'm saying is, we are held accountable. We are held accountable. There's an appropriate fear. Now, I know that there's an inappropriate fear too, but that's not what I'm talking about. This is not condemnation, okay? This is about accountability. This is about reverence. This is about living within the awe of God. The fear of the Lord is also a recognition of our accountability to God and our desire to please him. Psalm 2 says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. 
or rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We don't normally think of rejoice being in the middle of fear and trembling, but there it is. Why? Because the fear of God is the most honest response to who God really is. If you are not fearing God, you don't have the right conception of God. Or man, you are just so prideful that you think you don't need to do it. You're not humbling yourself because God is worthy of being praised and is worthy of awe, worthy of our worship. That's who he really is. So to fear him would be the most natural response to who he is. And this fear is to is to envelop everything. Listen to what Colossians says. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men. It seems that Paul is convinced that this Christological perspective or putting Christ at the center will transform our employment into an act of worship that we're not just doing things to satisfy the boss, but we realize we have an audience with God and God sees how I'm doing my labor. That should stop you from stealing from petty cash. That should allow you to be motivated to work hard in all that you do. That's a lasting motivation. Sincere hearts and the fear of God. It brings an appropriate recognition of his presence, of his intervention in our lives. In Jeremiah 33, 9, and I want to to communicate this now that the fear of God also has so many good things enveloping it. Check this out. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I provide for them. You get that? That when God is good to you, that when God prospers you, that when God heals you, that when God does good for you, that is an opportunity to fear God. Because God has intervened on your behalf. He, his presence is there. He makes himself known. That would be the most natural thing then is to fear him and thank him to recognize his awesomeness. Knowing God intervened in the world, even for good, it brought a sense of his holy presence and fear and trembling resulted. When a woman was healed in Mark 5, what did she do? She fell before him in fear. I think the idea that Paul is communicating in Colossians is that we're to be so aware of the presence of God in our lives, so cognizant that his eyes are over our labor that we fear him. This is not repressive. This is freeing. This is not negative. It is positive because it leads you to obedience. It's a holy awe. It takes into account that God is sovereign and he's present. 
You not being aware of that does not change the fact of it. He is sovereign and he is present. Look at what accompanies this healthy fear. Psalm 25, 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And makes known to them his covenant. Those who know him best, those who are closest to him, fear him. There's respect, there's reverence for who he really is. And then Proverbs 14 26 In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge from the fear of God. So fearing God moves us in relationship with him, causes us to hate evil. It gives us confidence that that he is here, that he is sovereign, that he, he does not break his promises, that he intervenes. So I'm calling out to us, brothers and sisters, let us walk in the fear of God. And let us walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think I told you when I started with the book of Acts how I wanted to let the book of Acts speak for itself. And let me tell you, it has rocked my world in the best kind of way. I have tried to listen to both sides. You know, I grew up a certain way, was not Pentecostal. You know, I have some very good friends that are in that world, and I've tried to learn from them. I've got a dear friend who's, I think, one of the most preeminent Pentecostal theologians. We've had discussions about some issues related to the Holy Spirit. It has been a great learning experience for me. I come to you not as one that has it all down, not that I have this perfect or I have, you know, all the knowledge about the Holy Spirit. I'm still learning. I still want it to be, uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit, uh, filling my life in every area. Let me tell you, though, what I think, in my humble opinion, what is abundantly clear, that you cannot relegate the Holy Spirit to one or two things in a worship service, and that's the proof that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. That is not how the Holy Spirit has revealed himself in the Scriptures. The New Testament attributes many works to the Holy Spirit, and we would do well to remember that. And I think it is not very wise to pigeonhole God or to limit the Spirit with some hobby horse characteristics. We have to see the Holy Spirit as all-pervasive in our life, intervening, empowering us. So I went through every time the Spirit is mentioned in the New Testament, and this is not exhaustive, but I'm going to give you a lot here, and I'm going to read it fast for you, only because if we took time, we wouldn't get through this in the amount of time that we have today. I want you to get a a picture of the breadth, the width, and the depth of the Holy Spirit's involvement and his activity. Check this out. By the way, if you have your smartphone app, all of these are listed in your smartphone app that we have for the message today. Here's what you'll find. The Holy Spirit was instrumental in eliminating demons from people. 
He fills people for supernatural activity. He's used to reveal truth. He's used to anoint, he was used to anoint Jesus to preach. He teaches us. He baptizes. He's an instrument of salvation. He empowers others to give the word of God. He gives life. He bears witness of Christ. He guides us in truth. He gives power. He prompts the Holy Spirit, or the, the Holy Spirit prompts believers in Acts 2 to speak in tongues. He causes some to prophesy. He provides wisdom. He pro, uh, prompts faith. He provides joy. He places some within the church to lead, to be leaders in the church. He provides us with love. He sets us free in Christ. He gives us strength not to walk in the flesh. He gives us peace. He's the guarantee that Christ is in us. He leads us to be sons of God. He adopts us into God's family. He helps us to pray. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. He gives us righteousness, peace, and joy. He helps us abound in hope. He sanctifies us. He empowers us to fulfill the preaching of the gospel. He reveals and interprets to us some of the thoughts of God. He washes and justifies us. He indwells us, making us a temple of God. He reveals to us that Jesus is Lord. He gives gifts to edify the body of Christ. He places each of us within the body of Christ when he baptizes us. He makes us ministers of the new covenant. He transforms us into the image of Christ. He provides us with fellowship. He gives us hope for the future. He produces the fruit of Christ-like characteristics in us or the fruit of the Spirit. He's used so that we reap eternal life. He seals us as God's children. He gives us access to the Father. He's building us into a, a dwelling place for God. He gives us unity. He gives us weapons for spiritual warfare. Again, he gives us love. He guards for us the truth of God, the gospel. He reveals to us that Jesus came in the flesh. He causes us to abide in Christ. He speaks to the churches, and I'm out of breath. Yeah. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. He's doing all of that. How can we think? that we can judge other people by one or two aspects of that, whether they're filled with the Spirit or whether they raise their hands or not because they're speaking in tongues or whatever. Such views, I think, limit the Holy Spirit, not give freedom to do the Spirit's work. God wants to do so much more in our life than just that. I'm not negating that, but I'm saying the Holy Spirit's work is so much more than that. So much more than what we display here on Sunday. I mean, I want the Holy Spirit to fill me in my marriage, to fill me at work, to fill me when I'm driving when I need it most. In all aspects, the Holy Spirit is active, working. In addition, here in Acts, the church is called to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He's called the comforter or helper in John 16. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. This is out of, this is out of 2 Corinthians, but he's called the comforter in John 16. But out of 2 Corinthians, I want you to see how this is applied, okay? Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, 
in one way that God comforts us, he might comfort us with people who maybe have gone through the same thing that we have gone through. And then he uses that so that we can comfort others. We could say it this way, that the Holy Spirit opens up our hearts to be vulnerable to one another, and that brings comfort. That brings comfort. I had another pastor come to me today that shared a deep personal issue, and he said to me, I can't go to anybody else. I don't know who else I can go to. And he said, I know, basically, you walk with a limp, which is a way of saying we've all got weaknesses. And when we're vulnerable like that with other people, God allows us then to comfort others. So when you're vulnerable to others, you know what's going to happen? People are going to start coming to you. It's like, you know, I know you understand pain. I know you understand hurt. I know I can come to you. And God uses the comfort that you've been given to comfort others. My friends, that's ministry. That's relationship. So when God shows up, there's going to be comfort. Derek Williams, one of our elders, a couple weeks ago, went on a business trip to Washington, D.C. While he was there, it was when Billy Graham's body was laid out in the rotunda. It's his casket. Derek said that after waiting about three hours in the line to get to the rotunda, he witnessed something. There was, and by the way, I checked as many newscasts as I could. I Googled this. I could not find this episode talked about anywhere. But he said as he walked in, it was like this worship service was taking place, but it was in hushed tones. People were humming or just kind of low-volume singing that was just reverberating. The guards who were there had tears coming down their faces. It was comfort for one another. Thanks for Derek having his phone with him. We'll get to listen in. Check this out. 